What's up, y'all? Welcome back to Black and Cold, a true crime podcast. I am Michelle, your host, and I am back with another case for you guys this week. Before I start, I just want to say please remember to subscribe, rate, and review this show on whatever platforms you all are listening from. It helps me out. Um, I do take case suggestions for anyone that would like to see me cover a specific case. You can find the link to send those in in the description of this episode. And lastly, to keep up with any updates, feel free to follow us on Instagram at black underscore cold underscore podcast. All right, so let's jump into this episode here. I've recently gotten a request to cover another serial killer case, and this case today not only covers one, but two serial killers. Alton Coleman and his girlfriend slash accomplice, Deborah Brown, ran rampant in the year of 1984. Their crime spree went across six different states in only a time span of about two months. Unlike many of your typical serial killers, they didn't really have this specific MO. They were kind of all over the place and sporadic. And although majority of their victims were black, a couple of them were not. And their victims consisted of children, young adults, and even the elderly, having so many people in the Midwest on the edge of their seats. Today, I will be telling you the very disturbing and the very brutal story of the serial killer couple Alton Coleman and Deborah Brown. Alton Coleman was born on November 6, 1955 in Waukegan, Illinois, which is about 30 minutes north of Chicago. He was raised by his grandmother for the most part, while his mom worked multiple jobs. Coleman did not have the easiest upbringing, and he was often bullied as a child. He received the nickname Pissy pretty early on by his fellow students because he used to wet his pants. Coleman dropped out of middle school, and this is where he began to take on the name as a troublemaker in his neighborhood. As a teenager, he started committing petty crimes. Arson and property damage are just examples of what he was doing. He even went as far as breaking the windows of the housing project he lived in. Young Coleman stood out to others as he showed very little emotion and alienated himself from his peers. I read that he also may have been bisexual and that he had a reputation for having a very high sex drive. Coleman was said to have sex with almost anyone at any given time, according to people who knew him. In 1973, 18-year-old Coleman and an accomplice kidnapped, robbed, and raped an elderly woman. Because the victim refused to testify about the rape, Coleman was sentenced to only two years in prison for the robbery charge. According to an article by Mark Gribben from the Crime Library, three months after his release, Coleman was quickly arrested again for another rape, and he was ultimately acquitted for this offense as well and ended up only serving four years in prison but on a lesser charge. Coleman's sex crimes did not stop there, however. 
A year after this release from this four-year bid, he was charged yet again with another rape, but that was dismissed. And then in 1983, his own sister came forward and told law enforcement that Coleman had raped her eight-year-old daughter, who was also his niece. But that charge did not stick either. Three weeks after his sister came forward, she had the charges against her brother dropped. And that same article from the crime library recited her about this situation, and she said, quote, It's a misunderstanding. A lot of families go through that. It doesn't make any difference now, end quote. Now, many people were so taken back at Coleman's sister's change of heart. The judge who was present for the motion of dismissal felt that she was actually afraid of her brother, which prompted her not to follow through with the charge. And because this was the case, yet again, Coleman was a free man and he escaped another heinous charge. So from 1973 to 1983, this man dodged a total of four rapes from what we know, which is just crazy. And he never had to do any real time for any of them. And sometime in 1983, this is where Alton Coleman and Deborah Brown meet. Deborah Brown was born on November 11th, 1962. And starting from a young age, she suffered from an intellectual disability. Unlike Coleman, Deborah came from a pretty stable home and she had no criminal history. And I actually read that she was engaged to another man during the time she crossed paths with Coleman, but she ended up leaving this guy and her family to go be with him. And this introduction here would spark a very deadly crime spree. The crime spree of the deadly duo would begin on May 29, 1984 in Kenosha, Wisconsin. And this is after 28-year-old Alton Coleman, who was going by a different alias named Robert, befriended a woman named Juanita Wheat. And he had known her for about a month or so at this point, but Juanita had a nine-year-old daughter named Vernita. And on this particular day, the two of them, along with Alton, aka Robert, all went to this local carnival together. After a long day, the three of them returned back to Juanita's residence, and this is where Alton told her that he had a late Mother's Day gift he wanted to give to her. He told Juanita that the gift was just a few blocks away at his apartment and that he needed to run and get it. Coleman, aka Robert, then requested for nine-year-old Vernita to come with him to help carry the gift back. And Juanita was reluctant about this at first, as she should be, but she eventually agreed. And as the two walked away together to go retrieve what was supposed to be a stereo, a present for her mother, that would be the last time Juanita saw her daughter alive. What's up, New York City? Bring your special day to life with the help of the ladies over at Le Deux Event Design. Le Deux, which means both in French, was founded by two amazing ladies who are here to assist you with anything from upscale floral decor all the way to helping you plan your whole entire event. You can find their work on their Instagram at L-E-S-D-E-U-X-D. Reach out to the ladies today. After some hours passed and the man Juanita knew as Robert did not return with her nine-year-old daughter, she began to grow concerned. She went to the address that he provided her, which was supposed to be his residence, 
but when Juanita arrived there, she learned that this was just an abandoned building. And this is when the panic really began to set in for her. She then went to a friend's house nearby to contact the police. The police quickly put their focus on this man named Robert Knight, but authorities learned that there was no one on record by that name. Juanita was then shown multiple pictures of wanted criminals, and after going through numerous photos, she pointed to the man who she was positive was Robert Knight. But authorities let her know his real name was actually Alton Coleman. Now, law enforcement was already familiar with Coleman for all the previous charges that he faced. They knew he was dangerous and violent, and they knew he had a reputation for getting away with a lot of his crimes. Because she was a young child that was taken, the FBI quickly got involved in the disappearance of Vernita. They decided to pay a visit to Coleman's real residence that he shared with his disabled grandmother in Waukegan. And when authorities arrived to his home, they were taken back when a young woman named Deborah Brown answered. Brown told the police that she had lived there in that home for about a year, she was the girlfriend, and she was helping to care for Coleman's grandmother, who was nearly blind. When asked about his whereabouts, all she knew was that Coleman was gone all night, but that he came home alone at around 8 o'clock a.m. that morning to change his clothes for his court date that he had. Coleman was expected to be in court that day for yet another sexual assault charge he had against him. He was accused of raping a 14-year-old girl at knife point. Deborah Brown admitted that her boyfriend had done something bad because that's what he told her, but that was all she was able to provide law enforcement. The FBI came together with local investigators and they searched the area for Coleman, while others waited at his house for him to come back home potentially. But that time never came. He never showed up. Alton Coleman did not own a vehicle, so although investigators weren't successful at locating him, they knew word of him would eventually come out. And this is because he had to use cabs and other means of public transportation, so he was going to be around for others to see. Many people in Coleman's neighborhood were also familiar with him. He made people feel comfortable when he spoke to them. He was a smooth talker. There was a reward put up for $5,000 leading to his arrest. And on May 31st, just two days after the kidnapping of nine-year-old Vernita, a taxi driver reached out to investigators to report that he was picking up Coleman and taking him to his sister's home. He was dropped off there, but in the midst of being there, Coleman spotted officers approaching, looking for him. And some way, somehow, he managed to escape, and he ran off. Authorities searched nearby her home, and they even had this sister try to speak to Coleman through a bullhorn to turn himself in, and investigators also looked in abandoned buildings nearby for him, but their search turned out unsuccessful. Coleman got away from the area that he knew so well. And he was now gone, but the FBI also had to find Vernita, who was still missing as well. Coleman did not have her when he went to his sister's home, which left everyone scared and desperate to try and find her. Vernita's photos were blasted in newspapers and on TV stations, hoping someone would call in with a tip, and eventually someone did. 
Another cab driver came forward and told investigators that he picked Coleman and the young girl up on the day of her disappearance. According to this driver, he dropped the two off at a scrapyard in Waukegan. So investigators went there and they spoke to the manager who was working that night. And the manager remembered seeing Coleman with a young girl. The manager knew it was Coleman because he had this distinct walk and they confirmed that they saw the two there at around 12 midnight, walking hand in hand together. This sighting prompted a federal warrant to be issued for Alton Coleman because investigators now confirmed Vernita was taken across state lines. Authorities in both Kenosha, Wisconsin, and now Waukegan, Illinois, began to conduct larger and more extensive searches for the nine-year-old little girl. They even circled back to Coleman's girlfriend, Deborah Brown, and interrogated her again about his whereabouts, but they seemed to be getting nowhere further with her. It wasn't until three weeks later, on June 19th, when a man who was looking for scrap metal in an abandoned building in Waukegan discovered the badly decomposed body of a young child under a blanket. When law enforcement arrived to the scene, they quickly put the dots together that this victim was nine-year-old Vernita Wheat. Her hairstyle and clothing matched to the day that she disappeared. There were also carnival tickets in the pockets of her clothing, which made the authorities' feelings more solid, but ultimately her fingerprints would confirm her identification. Vernita was found wrapped in a men's corduroy jacket, her hands, feet, and neck were bound with a television cable, and she was also sexually assaulted. Her cause of death was a result of ligature strangulation. Investigators were able to retrieve a thumbprint at their crime scene, which came out to be a match to none other than Alton Coleman. In the midst of searching for Vanita before she was even found, law enforcement became aware that the body of another young girl was discovered on June 18th in Gary, Indiana. And this is over 80 miles away from Waukegan. The discovery of this young child spread across local news stations, as well as the descriptions of the perpetrators, and they were described as an African-American couple. The young child found in this wooded area in Gary died as a result of strangulation, just like Vernita. Authorities learned that there was a witness to her attack, though, who was also a survivor as well, and she was nine-year-old Annie. Earlier that day, on June 18th, nine-year-old Annie and her seven-year-old niece, Tamika, were on the way to the store when they were approached by a couple that offered them clothes and other gifts children their ages would like. The two girls initially were hesitant and kind of like, no, but the woman from the pair was the one to speak to them, and she was able to make them feel a little more comfortable. They then followed this couple into the woods after they were bribed, where they both were assaulted. Annie, who I have to stress was only nine years old at the time, was forced to watch a brutal beating and attack on her niece. Tamika faced multiple stomps to her chest before she was strangled to death. Annie was then beaten badly, sexually assaulted by both the woman and man of this couple before she was choked. Miraculously, she was able to survive, and after waking up from her attack, Annie was then able to drag herself out of the woods to the street for help where she was rushed to the hospital. She was able to tell investigators exactly what happened to her and her niece, as well as identify one of the two people that did this to them. 
Annie pointed out Coleman from photos, and although she wasn't able to point out Deborah Brown, the description she gave was a match to her. Coleman was not a stranger to the news, but now his girlfriend's photos were also shared with the public. And this came somewhat of a shock to investigators as they figured Deborah Brown may have been a lot more involved in her boyfriend's crimes than she initially put out. At this moment in time, Deborah was also not seen by others for weeks, so investigators strongly felt she was involved. The couple managed to remain ahead of the police, avoiding apprehension. The murders of these two young children were both in predominantly Black neighborhoods where Coleman and Brown were able to blend in. They would next make their way to another state and begin a string of crimes in Detroit, Michigan, over 200 miles away from Gary. Hours after Annie was rescued and Tamika's body was discovered, Coleman and Brown met up with 25-year-old Donna Williams, who they befriended from Gary, Indiana. When Donna did not return back home, her family began to grow concerned and they reported her missing as well as her vehicle. As the investigation began and loved ones wanted to find out where she was, on June 21st, just a few days later, a 28-year-old woman in Detroit reported that she was kidnapped by a couple whom she later identified was Coleman and Brown. Now, luckily, she was able to get away. According to sources, the two forced her to drive them to Toledo, so they were clearly trying to make their way to another state. But this woman actually drove her car into another vehicle, and that's how she was able to escape. On June 26, the car of Donna Williams, who was reported missing by her parents, was discovered abandoned in Detroit. And witnesses from the area said that her car was actually just sitting in that location since June 19th, which was the same day she disappeared. Now, inside her vehicle, investigators found a forged ID with Deborah Brown's picture under a different name. The Detroit police knew exactly who was responsible for the disappearance of Donna Williams, and it was unfortunate at the time that they presumed her to be dead because of the history Coleman and Brown had. On June 28th in Dearborn Heights, which is a part of Detroit's metro area, and this is only two days after Donna's car was found, the robbery and assault of Palmer and Marge Jones was reported, and their car was also stolen. Just a couple of days after that, on June 30th, the Detroit police were made known of another robbery of two individuals. So Coleman and Brown were running around Detroit for some days, and they managed to bounce around and stay with people that they just met. Like I said, Coleman was a smooth talker and he appeared to be harmless, making it easier for them to get around, and that's how they were also able to get away with these crimes. The duo still managed to make it to Toledo, Ohio, however, because two women then came forward there and reported that the couple had stole their 1975 Buick. On July 7th, the local police of Toledo then responded to a missing persons call. A frantic mom was looking for her 30-year-old daughter named Virginia, who she had not heard from in a couple of days. She knew it was so unlike her to go off the radar, and she requested that the police just check out her residence to make sure everything was okay. When officers arrived to the home of Virginia, her 8-year-old son, who was scared initially, too scared to even open the door, he was home alone with another younger sibling, who I believe was just three years old. And officers had to convince him to even let them inside, like that's how frightened this little boy was. 
but he eventually let them in, and as the police canvassed around the house, they noticed blood scattered throughout the kitchen, which led them to the basement. As they went downstairs to check their necks, they discovered the deceased bodies of 30-year-old Virginia Temple and her 10-year-old daughter Rochelle, stuffed in a crawl space. Rochelle was discovered bleeding from her private areas, indicating that she was sexually assaulted. Her and her mom, Virginia, were both strangled to death. According to Virginia's eight-year-old son, a young Black couple who were later identified as Coleman and Brown recently came to their home saying they just moved to this neighborhood. Virginia, who was described by her sister as being a beautiful person, decided to befriend this couple and even invited them over for dinner on the evening of July 6th. After some time of everyone socializing, Virginia's son recalled the man putting a knife in his pocket before he was put to bed. When he woke up the next morning, his mother and sister were nowhere to be found. Coleman and Brown robbed the home of personal items and investigators found pieces of jerry curls left in the bathroom, indicating that someone from the couple, or maybe both of them, had cut their hair to help change their identity. After this double homicide, Alton Coleman and Deborah Brown were added to the FBI's most wanted list. A list that usually contained 10 of the most wanted people in this country, Alton Coleman, with the help of his girlfriend, were now labeled as number 11, making them a special edition, which is a rare occurrence. But Coleman and Brown managed to continue their way through the state of Ohio and avoid law enforcement. They next robbed an elderly couple for their vehicle to help transport them to another city. Dorothy Duvendak and her husband, Frank Duvendak, who were in their 70s at the time, were both bound and gagged with paper tissues. Not only was their vehicle stolen, but Coleman and Brown robbed them of money as well. As they continued going through Ohio, the body of 25-year-old Donna Williams, who was reported missing by her parents, was finally discovered in Detroit on July 11th. She was found in an abandoned building near Wayne State University, close to where her car was located, and this was almost a month after she disappeared. It cannot be determined if Donna was also a victim of sexual assault. However, her cause of death was strangulation, like many of Coleman and Brown's past victims. On the very same day Donna Williams' body was discovered, 15-year-old Tony Story disappeared from Cincinnati after leaving her home to attend class. Tony was last seen by a classmate that day talking with an African-American male who was accompanied by a woman. Tony was reported missing by her parents the next day, but eight days later on July 19th, she was also found in an abandoned building strangled to death. Fingerprints taken from the crime scene came back as a match to none other than Alton Coleman. The couple also managed to leave behind additional evidence here, which was a bracelet that belonged to Virginia Temple, who they murdered in Toledo. On July 13th, so this is just two days after Tony was last seen, so this was before she was even discovered, married couple Harry and Marlene Waters were found at the bottom of their basement steps in pools of blood. Their daughter Sherry was the one who made the discovery after she came home from work. When she arrived, she noticed that her house was a wreck and it looked like it had been vandalized. As Sherry went around some more, she realized that blood was all over the kitchen. She then began to hear noises inside, 
and that's what led her to the basement, and that's where she found her parents. When the officers responded, they found 44-year-old Marlene with a bloody sheet on top of her. Her hands and feet were tied, and she was severely beaten to death. She was hit with multiple items like a soft drink bottle, a crowbar, and a magazine rack, to name a few. Harry, who was 45 at the time, also found bound, laid there, clinging to life. He was beaten, and he had been stabbed in the abdomen and found with a rope around his neck. It was a very cruel and brutal crime scene, according to the detectives that were there. The Walter's daughter, Sherry, was able to tell authorities that earlier on in the day, a couple came by their home, which was in the suburb of Cincinnati, on bicycles, inquiring about a price for the camper that was in their yard. She did not stay there after they were invited inside by her friendly parents, but when she returned back, she noticed that the couple's bikes were still out front, and her parents' car had been missing. When Sherry went inside, that's when she discovered her mother and father. She gave the officers a physical description of the pair, matching perfectly to Coleman and Brown. Coleman's fingerprints were also left all over the crowbar that killed Marlene. Ultimately, Harry survived this horrible attack, and after an APB was put out, the Walters vehicle was found in a cornfield in Kentucky days later. So continuing their spree, the couple made their way to Kentucky. And while there, on July 16th, they kidnapped a 33-year-old professor from Lexington. They hijacked his car and stole his money and drove to Dayton, Ohio, which was about 70 miles away. And this was all while their victim was in the trunk of his own car. But fortunately, he was later rescued and able to notify law enforcement. Carjackings and assaults began to be given immediate attention all throughout the Midwest, and it was only a matter of time before another one occurred. The next day, on July 17th, Coleman and Brown then stole a vehicle from an elderly couple in Dayton. Reverend Millard Gay and his wife Catherine were found in their home beaten and fearing for their lives. Reverend Gay was brutally pistol-whipped, and after an unsuccessful attempt to strangle Catherine, Coleman made an attempt to shoot her, but the gun malfunctioned. Catherine explained to authorities that this was a couple they befriended weeks earlier, and that they broke into their home and assaulted them before stealing their car. Reverend Gay's car was found in Indiana the very next day. The FBI had a feeling that the fugitives would eventually make their way back to their home state of Illinois after this series of attacks. They figured Coleman and Brown would want to go back to their comfort zones with time, and the FBI was right. Hey listeners, let me tell you all about the Glam Magic Brush and Sponge Cleaner. Y'all, if you have been looking for a really good makeup brush cleaner, this is definitely one to try. I struggle so much when it comes to cleaning my brushes, especially my sponges thoroughly, but this product is so easy to use and my stuff just looked like it was just brand new again. On top of that, it smells good. You can find more information about the Glam Magic Brush and Sponge Cleaner, its ingredients, plus their other makeup products on www.glamsessionsnyc.com. On July 18th, 77-year-old Eugene Scott of Indianapolis was reported missing by his family. His car was eventually located abandoned in Evanston, Illinois, 
and his body was discovered in a ditch just 20 miles away from the home where Alton Coleman and Deborah Brown lived. Eugene's hands had been slashed with a knife and he was also shot in the head. So the couple came back to their home state as investigators suspected. Now they just needed to find them. At this point, all of these states and everyone from law enforcement was on high alert looking for these two. And the search for the couple paid off when a local motorist spotted Coleman and Brown in Mason Park. And this park is in Evanston, which indicated that the two hadn't gotten very far in the past two days. Now, this motorist was positive on their identification and had a friend call the police as he kept eyes on them. According to the Crime Library's article, the couple was picked up by authorities while watching a basketball game from the bleachers, not too far where their last victim, Eugene Scott's car, was found. Both of them gave officers a fake name and denied being the people that they were looking for. But that didn't work because clearly authorities knew exactly who they were looking for. I mean, their faces had been all over different communities in different states for weeks. Brown was carrying a loaded gun and Coleman was armed with a knife in his sock, but neither one of them went to retrieve their weapons. Many people who were there to witness the arrest say the couple appeared to look very defeated. They didn't even put up a fight or make any fuss. Many of the crime scenes they left behind were sloppy and contained fingerprints, which they never tried to hide, so they knew they were going to get caught eventually. As you can see, Alton Coleman and Deborah Brown did not really have a typical person they went after, if we're talking physically. They had a disorganized pattern of crimes with some similarities to them. The couple would make friends, many times riding these bicycles, which gave people the impression that they were locals to these neighborhoods that they hit. They caught all of their victims off guard, and Coleman and Brown were also pretty much like thrill criminals who did things that were convenient for them at that moment, so no one was safe. It was pretty much like if they wanted a vehicle, they would assault and rob someone for it, and if they wanted the disturbing sexual gratification that they yearned, they would kidnap a child. Alton Coleman and Deborah Brown committed eight murders, seven rapes, three kidnappings, and 14 armed robberies across six different states. Their 53-day crime spree finally came to an end on July 20, 1984. The couple's identification was confirmed through fingerprints in custody, despite Coleman trying to deny any involvement. As they sat in custody, both state and federal officials had to decide how they should proceed with the duo's charges, Coleman and Brown would each have their own separate trials. Deborah Brown, who never had a criminal record, was ultimately convicted of murder in both Ohio and Indiana for her role in the deaths of Marlene Walters and Tamika Turks. Brown's family completely resented the day that she met Alton Coleman. She was originally sentenced to death, but in 1991, her sentence in Ohio was commuted by Governor Richard Celeste. This decision was made because of Brown's intellectual disability, which made people feel she was more susceptible to her boyfriend's control and she was in a master-slave relationship. In December of 2018, Brown's sentence in Indiana was also commuted, where she was given 140 years instead, no longer facing execution. 
At the time, she was the only woman on Indiana's death row. She is currently serving her time at a correctional institution in Ohio. The family of Tamika Turks struggled with the pulling of the death penalty for Deborah Brown. I mean, they feel she is just as equally responsible for these crimes just as Coleman. Now, Coleman was tried in three different states. In Ohio, he was convicted for the murder of 15-year-old Tony Story and Marlene Walters. In Illinois, he was convicted of the kidnapping and murder of nine-year-old Vernita Wheat. And in Indiana, he was convicted for the murder of seven-year-old Tamika Turks. Coleman acted as his own attorney in two of these states, and he even called his accomplice, Deborah Brown, to the stand. He cross-examined her and even tried to convince her to take 100% blame for the murder of Mrs. Walters, saying she acted alone. But Alton Coleman's tactics did not work for him, and he was sentenced to death in all three states. The murder of Donna Williams in Detroit was not tried as Michigan was not a death penalty state, which is what law enforcement was going for. The double murder of Toledo family, Virginia, and her daughter, Rochelle Temple, was also not tried, in addition to the murder of their last victim, Eugene Scott. While in custody, Coleman appeared to be enjoying the attention he was getting in prison. He was celebrity status in there, and he also enjoyed speaking with female reporters who came to talk to him. On April 25th, 2002, Alton Coleman would eat his last meal at Southern Ohio Correctional Facility. He ordered a huge feast, which included filet mignon with sautéed mushrooms, fried chicken breasts, cornbread, biscuits and brown gravy, french fries, broccoli with cheese, salad with french dressing, onion rings, collard greens, sweet potato pie with whipped cream, butter pecan ice cream, and a cherry Coke. At 46 years old, Alton Coleman was then executed by legal injection. Although some of his victims' families felt a sense of relief, it will never fill the void of their loved ones that they lost. The crimes committed by Coleman and Brown were just senseless, and it still remains a question why they even did them in the first place. Many people feel Coleman had an intense hatred for his own people, Black people. However, longtime friends and associates that knew him dispute that. It was also suggested that Coleman may have not been comfortable with his sexual orientation, which may have been the reason for his heinous crimes. Now, I'm not sure on the accuracy of this, but I read in some of the sources that Coleman possibly suffered from a mental illness himself, as well as childhood abuse. Now, this doesn't make his actions excusable, but I think it could be a factor if it's true. As I watch the FBI files on this case, some of the investigators just feel Coleman murdered out of stress and rage for his past crimes he was charged with. Then, there is also that thought that he just enjoyed these crimes. It was easy for him to do, and that's exactly why he did it. There was no real reason behind it. <laughs> 